Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. It's the middle of summer here in New York. The weather is very pleasantly summery. We're not in the middle of a heat wave. And I thought on such a nice summer evening, I would go into our archives. Uh, I decided that it would be very fitting to pay tribute to a past guest on the show, someone very special, Greg Truppiano, who sadly passed away in February. Greg loved bringing the history of his beloved Brooklyn to life, especially where it was touched and influenced by America's great poet, Walt Whitman. Greg was the founder and artistic director of the Walt Whitman Project here in New York. I didn't know Greg for a long time. We met on a walking tour last summer of the Brooklyn waterfront, in fact, that he created and hosted an aptly called Crossing the Brooklyn Ferry after a poem of the same name by Whitman. Greg also loved opera and especially bringing opera into people's lives. Among his many, the many hats Greg wore, he was the artistic administrator of the Sarasota Opera in Florida. I was lucky to have had Greg as my guest, not on one show, but two, when we celebrated two of his loves. Greg was on an episode showcasing Fort Greene, that wonderful Brooklyn neighborhood where Whitman actually once lived. And together with Michael Capasso, the general director of the New York City Opera, he was part of a lively and fascinating conversation about the history of opera in New York City, which is one of my loves too. And that was from an episode I hosted last fall. I hope you all enjoy these past shows at least half as much as I will hearing them again tonight. And today we are headed to one of Brooklyn's most beautiful and oldest neighborhoods, one of my favorites, Fort Greene. And uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about part of a neighborhood that's a little bit north of that, Wallabout Bay and the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Our first guest is Greg Truppiano. Uh, Greg is a native of Brooklyn. He's the founder and artistic director of the Walt Whitman Project. It's a Brooklyn-based community arts organization that started in 2000. It's devoted to exploring the life and influence of a great American writer through readings of his poetry and prose and performances of musical compositions based on his texts. Uh, it's often said that Whitman is America's greatest poet. Past events of the Walt Whitman Project have been, have been produced in cooperation with American Opera Projects, Fort Greene Park, I'm sorry, Fort Greene Park Conservancy, Brooklyn Historical Society, of which yours truly happens to be a member, the Hudson Guild Theater Company, the Whitney Museum of American Art, Museum of the City of New York, BLDG 92 with the Brooklyn Navy Yard, the Gay Gotham Chorus, the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and with young poet writing mentor Angeli Raspberry. Did I pronounce his name right? Angeli. Angeli, sorry. I'm thinking the Italian Angeli, Angeli Raspberry. Other past partners include St. Francis College, Pace University in Lower Manhattan, the Macon, Brooklyn Heights, and Central Branch of the Brooklyn Public Library and the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. The Walt Whitman Project has produced programs out of New York City at locations including the Walt Whitman Birthplace in Huntington, Long Island, and in Chicago, Washington, D.C., and Sarasota, Florida. But Greg's artistic talent is not limited to New York. He is the artistic director, I'm sorry, director of artistic administration at the Sarasota Opera in Florida. He spends half his year in that state. Wow, must be the winter time that you go down there. And he doesn't run the company without some help. Lon Black is the project's artistic associate. Greg, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Jeff, thank you so much this beautiful evening in Manhattan. You know, sometimes I get nervous when I leave Brooklyn, Jeff. But <laughs> it's so beautiful this evening. I'm really glad to be here with you in Manhattan. Well, I ordered the weather that way, as I sometimes do for walking tours. Uh, and believe you me, it wasn't that easy, but, uh, but we made it happen. You're actually a Brooklyn native, Greg. That's true. What part of Brooklyn are you from? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Kensington, mm -hmm. Avenue F and East 4th Street. I went to St. Rose of Lima Catholic Elementary School, and then I went to Erasmus Hall High School. Erasmus Hall in Flatbush. In Flatbush, Flatbush and Church yeah. Avenue, the second oldest uh, uh, public school in New York City, actually in the nation. And, uh, you know, not that they were my classmates, but people like Barbara Streisand and Barbara Stanwyck and Billy Cunningham and Neil Diamond all went to Erasmus Hall High School. Did you study social? You must have taken social studies at Erasmus Hall. I did, yes. Do you remember a Mr. Bernstein? No. Okay, that I had, name I don't know. Was, uh, my, my favorite teacher in high school was Gladys Bernstein, and her husband was the chairman of the department at Erasmus. I went to Midwood. Aha. Uh -huh. And so I thought you might have... Uh, I forgot his first name. We're uh, enemies. You went to Midwood. Midwood I did, which is not actually in Midwood. Midwood is in Flatbush. Right. It's just over the line. Um, 
We'll talk about the Walt Whitman Project in a little bit, uh, but I want to ask you how you got involved with passionately sharing neighborhood history with people and, and in the different things that you do. Well, it really came first from my love of Walt Whitman. That came first. And then when you read Walt Whitman, especially his uh, journalism, his prose, and he starts talking about, hmm, I lived near Flatbush Avenue. I lived on Tillery Street. I lived on Johnson Street. I lived uh, near the uh, near the Fulton Ferry. You start crossing over and develop passions for these neighborhoods too because Walt was there and you're trying to touch him as much as possible. How long have you been giving tours, Greg? Well, the Walt Whitman Project is will be 20 years old in fall 2020. I'm very happy to say that. So I think we started to do tours fairly early on. And there's various tours we, we do. You know, the, uh, the tour you are on, Jeff, for Brooklyn Historic uh, Society, the one of Fulton Ferry and Walt Whitman, that was the first time I did that. My colleague for that was Stefan Killen. It was actually his idea, and I helped him d- uh, develop that. So that's one tour we now have. I have a downtown Whitman tour. It's surprising. Downtown, there are buildings that still exist that Whitman wrote about, such as for Whitman, it was Brooklyn City Hall. But Brooklyn Borough Hall, Whitman wrote extensively about. One of his big concerns when they were building it in the 1840s was, I hope it has good ventilation. And then the tour that I do give the most is the uh, Fort Greene Park Walt Whitman tour through, through and in conjunction with the Fort Greene Park Conservancy. And we'll talk about an upcoming tour in the, in the second part of our time together. And full disclosure, everyone, Greg and I first met about a month ago. I went on this great tour that was sponsored by the Brooklyn Historical Society. It's called Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. It was about Walt Whitman. It was very inspiring. Um, let's move to Fort Greene or the neighborhood that became Fort Greene. Um, before Europeans came, were there native peoples living in the area? Yes, uh, certainly. They were the uh, Canarsie Lenape people. And then the Europeans first arrived uh, in the area probably 10 years after the Dutch settled New Amsterdam to start the farming there? Right, and it was the Dutch who came to Brooklyn also. What was the area like when the British ruled New York before the time of the Revolution? Well, it was... Brooklyn was was not a city. New York was a city. New York, uh, Brooklyn was just a- open agricultural land. Uh, maybe the population was about between four thousand and five thousand. Obviously, lots of descendants from the from Dutch times, uh, and about a quarter of the population were slaves. A quarter of the population of Brooklyn were slaves. Wow, correct. Wow. That was hmm. remember slavery is not outlawed in New York State until eighteen twenty seven. Um, and it was the second uh, uh, to the last state in the north to actually get rid of slavery, the first being New Jersey. <laughs> we, have, we, we have something over New Jersey. Uh, Fort Greene, or the neighborhood that, the area that would become the neighborhood of Fort Greene, saw a lot of action during the Revolutionary War. Oh, it certainly did. And when, actually, we're coming up to a time of the year when we commemorate that, and that's the Battle of Brooklyn, also known as the Battle of Long Island. But for any number of reasons, I do prefer the title, the Battle of Brooklyn. So on August 27, 1776, the, the British had a plan to save the American Empire, and that was to take uh, New York City and the surrounding uh, areas and to hold them, to to send send soldiers in and to seize them. This way, they could cut off New England and part of New York from the rest of the colonies. And they hoped by doing that that they would uh, maintain the uh, their control over the area. And the, the uh, British sailed into Gravesend Bay in Brooklyn a few months before uh, August 27th. And they brought with them over 30,000 men for this expedition, huge number of men. So when they finally landed in Brooklyn on August 27th, they overwhelmed the tag American army. It was not a good day and night for uh, George Washington. Now, the Battle of Brooklyn was geographically wide-ranging. Uh, part of it, uh, for example, took place in Park Slope. At, at the at, Now, today we have the reconstruction of the old stone house, but that commemorates that. Part of it took place in the pumpkin patch at Greenwood Cemetery on, on 36th Street. And part of it also did take place 
at Fort Greene. Now, for the American Revolution, Fort Greene, the fort at present-day Fort Greene, was actually called Fort Putnam. When the Americans figured out that the strategy of the British was that they were going to sail in and try to take over Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights, and New York, they quickly put up a, a series uh, of redoubts or, or small forts made out of trees and, and, and stones and mud. And the redoubt at the top of Fort Greene was called Fort Putnam. For example, Car- well, Carroll Park is today. That's, that was another fort that the Americans put up, as was Fort Defiance off the shore of, of Red Hook. The British came in and overwhelmed the Americans. The Americans lost their lives, forcing George Washington to retreat from Fulton Landing, uh, Fulton Ferry Landing, over to Manhattan under the cover of dark and and fog that descended on the evening of August 27th. Thank goodness he did, or we probably wouldn't have the United States that we know today. That is absolutely true. And of course, we can't talk about Fort Greene or about Wallabout Bay without talking about the, the prison ships and the horrific conditions and, and the number of people who died uh, at the hands of the British on these on these on these horrible ships, Jeff, it, it's very true. At Wallabout Bay, which we should we should say that's where the Brooklyn Navy Yard is today. Uh, before it the the the, the bay was was filled in uh, to better serve the Brooklyn Navy Yard in, in uh, beginning in 1801, the British ran out of land jails and other places where to put their imprisoned Americans. Those Americans who weren't cheering for George the Third, who wanted independence, so they were being locked up by the British, including the, women, including in, including women, including people who were quote unquote not Americans, right? Because people from all over the globe came to fight the British for American independence. So it was. It, it it was very much a a a mixed uh, bag of people who came to fight for American independence. Uh, the British sailed into Wallabout Bay about sixteen derelict ships that they had from from their navy, and they imprisoned the Americans on them. The most notorious of these ships was the Jersey. That was the intake ship. So that was the ship that everyone had to go to, and which people remember. And on these ships, people died. Uh, of starvation, of disease, of overcrowding. And every morning the British would say, Americans, pass out your dead. The Americans were then uh, buried in the shallow sands of the Wallabout Bay. And over the course of decades, these remnants, these bones washed up to the shore. Uh, Also, lots of bones were recovered when the Navy Yard was construction started in 1801. The people of the area of Wallabout hated the British and the cruelty that they exhibited to these prisoners of war. And it's estimated, and this might be a conservative estimated uh, estimation, that over 12,000 people died on these ships. Which now, is more than the continental soldiers who were killed in, in action. In the which war. wasn't even, not to minimize that number, which wasn't even 6,000. So double the number of people died on the prison ships. How Horrible. Finally, in 1808, uh, the bone shards and other remnants of these now called martyrs, uh, while about patriots, prison ship martyrs, uh, there was constructed a little temple to them, little wooden structure right on the uh, uh, western wall of the navy yard. And that was the first of three structures uh, created in order to honor the prison ship martyrs. And, and Walt Whitman knew that structure. He talks about it in a, in a newspaper series. Mm. Um, what We're going to take a break in a minute. What was the area that would become Fort Greene? What was it like before the Civil War, right before the Civil War and before Brooklyn underwent a lot of industrialization? Sure. So uh, the, the great thing about Fort Greene is the hill, right? And that hill might have even actually been higher at one time. What was going to happen before the Civil War in the 1840s, that area was being developed. Brooklyn, which which finally became a city unto itself in 1834, was spreading towards the east, towards present-day Bed-Stuy and Queens. And the plan was to level the hill of old Fort Greene and to put streets in, right? So, so you wouldn't have... Uh, Willoughby Street on one side and Willoughby Avenue on the other, Willoughby would go all the way through on a level plane. And it was actually very much because of Walt Whitman and his uh, being the editor of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle that that 
did not happen. That old Fort Greene, which became Fort Greene for the War of 1812, um, was saved and maintained. Hmm. Uh, in fact, Fort Greene Park is actually older than Prospect Park. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And wasn't Fort Greene Park first created by an act of the legislature? Yes, state legislature, because it's the state legislature that actually uh, controls parkland in, in New York City. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, okay. Um, there was a lot of abolitionist activity in Fort Greene right before the war. Uh, there was the Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church, which had the likes of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman come and speak. And the church also aided the work of the Underground Railroad. Um, by 1870, I think, uh, didn't um, more than half of African-American Brooklynites live in Fort Greene? Uh, I think the population, I, I, th- I believe that's true. But, rem- but remember, the population of African-Americans at that time in Brooklyn w- was not huge. But in that area, it, it, was, it was substantial. And again, it's, it's remnants of sl- uh, slaves in New York State being given freedom uh, by uh, 1827. Mm. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Greg Truppiano of the Walt Whitman Project. Be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. First guest is Greg Truppiano of the Walt Whitman Project. Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit about the project and uh, what you do with, with it? Thank you so much. It is a community-based arts organization. Uh, giving tours is just one of the several things that we do. We have also have uh, sponsored poetry readings uh, in Fort Greene Park and other locations, such as some of the uh, Brooklyn Public Libraries. Uh, not just the poetry of Walt Whitman, but poetry by living poets and I'm very proud of that because Walt Whitman said he was just the first of many to come. So he was waiting for people to not only come after him, but to be greater than he was. And I think soon we're going to be there with that. Mm. Um, we also, I've uh, because I'm from the world of music and opera, I've commissioned, co-commissioned lots of settings of Whitman texts to new music. That's another thing that we do. We do literary events. Uh, we uh, Sometimes we do big community events, such as in, a number of years ago in Fort Greene, we had uh, uh, the, the Brooklyn Hospital and many other important institutions from the neighborhood came and was a day in the park, uh, inspired by Whitman, 
readings of Whitman, but also the community getting to know other parts of the community. And you have a, a special tour on Saturday, don't you? Yes, it's one of our tours of Fort Greene Park, told through the angle of how Walt Whitman, as the editor of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, was quite influential in the creation of the park. Uh, this was in 1846, and then in, finally in 1847, as you mentioned, the New York State Legislature finally gave approval of a park on Old Fort Greene. If someone wants to find out about the tour, how can they get in touch with they you? They should go to the Fort Greene Park Conservancy website, and they should make a reservation. Uh, and uh, and you know what? Even if the website says we're sold out, come anyway. All we right, start, everybody. We <laughs> start at 11 o'clock sharp at the, we, as we call it, the top of the hill, uh, Fort Greene Park at the Visitor's Center. Well, if anyone's listening to this on podcast, uh, the tour is going to be on Saturday, August 10th at 11 a.m. Be there or be square. I actually would be there, except I have another tour I'm hosting, and I can't make it. Otherwise, I would go. Anyway, getting back to Fort Greene and uh, after the Civil War, uh, you know, Brooklyn Heights is known as the borough's oldest settled neighborhood and certainly the oldest upscale community. But isn't Fort Greene the second oldest luxury community in what was then still the city of Brooklyn and even I, older than Park Slope? I, I think that's, that's true. And, and one way we could look at that is remember one, one of the great older institutions of Fort Greene is BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music. And that building of BAM on Lafayette, right east of Flatbush, uh, dates to 1908. But that's not the first BAM building. The first BAM building was on Montague Street near Clinton Street in Brooklyn Heights. And in 1903, the first BAM building in Brooklyn Heights burnt down. So it was decided to move BAM from Montague Street to Lafayette Avenue because they were following the money trail. So I think that is absolutely true. I mean, that that's one of the hands-on uh, examples we have of the money going towards that area. Actually, because after the construction of the bridge, uh, there was a, a, a diminution of value of local real estate in the Heights, and also after the subway that was was planned to be extended. And the Brooklyn Academy of Music, for those of you who have never been, is a, is a gorgeous structure. Uh, we used to go there, being a native of Brooklyn, uh, we used to go there from element, on, on elementary school trips, and I've seen some great uh, some great music performances there over the years. I used to live two blocks away when I lived in Borum Hill, but that's another in a, in the story. Um, when we speak about the history of public transportation in Manhattan, um, the L trains figure prominently, the 3rd Avenue L, the 9th Avenue L, the, the 8th Avenue L, the 2nd uh, Avenue L. Um, Brooklyn had its own L trains, and a number of lines went through Fort Greene. Oh, yes. that's. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. So uh, there was two major uh, elevated s subways, which means they're not subways, elevated trains went through Fort Greene. One was on Fulton Street, which I believe was finally taken down, that section of it, in, uh, in 1940. But even more recently, on Myrtle Avenue, there was the L train until 1969. Now, one of my favorite stories is when they took down the, the L train from Myrtle, they actually took part of the metal from the L and at St. Michael's and St. Edward's Church on St. Edward's Place in Fort Greene, they fashioned a new altar out of part of the L structure and a new cross for the church. Mm. So it was a way of incorporating the, uh, the old still in the community. Actually, it's a little bit of forgotten New York. Uh, if you, anyone's taking the old BMT line from uh, the DeKalb Avenue station toward the bridge, uh, there was uh, a station that transferred to the L train at Myrtle. And in fact, you can see now there are all these like colorful dancing figures through uh, through Slat. So uh, uh, I used to when I lived in Brooklyn, I used to love seeing that. But I don't take that that line anymore, so I can't. Um, BAM is certainly one of the old-time institutions in Fort Greene, but Brooklyn's oldest hospital was also based there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, what is today uh, Brooklyn Hospital Center used to be Brooklyn City Hospital. Uh, it was chartered in the 1840s. The first major building on, on the site, still, still there, uh, directly to the uh, west of Fort Greene Park, uh, the, that original building opened in 1855. And again, Walt Whitman, in his 1861-62 newspaper series, Brooklyniana, that he wrote for the Brooklyn Standard, writes about the hospital, and he is proud of it. He said, it's so wonderful to have this hospital. Now, so many people know Whitman as an, a visitor 
to the army hospitals during the Civil War in Washington. But when he came home to visit his mother, who, by the way, was still living on North Portland Street, directly across the street from Fort Greene Park during the Civil War. When he came home, he was still in the habit of going to Brooklyn City Hospital on the other side of the park and visiting the sick and wounded veterans. So he continued that even when he wasn't in Washington, D.C. So it's it's, uh, a very important connection to the the neighborhood and to Walt Whitman. Uh, there's uh, a little plug here for the Brooklyn Historical Society. They have a great exhibition at the main branch on Pierpont Street. It's called Taking Care of Brooklyn. I've actually seen it. <laughs> uh, it, it it's really something. And it actually talks about the history of health care in Brooklyn from almost the time that, that uh, the Dutch were here. And the founding of Brooklyn Hospital uh, has a prominent place in the exhibition. Um, let's talk briefly about the Williamsburg Savings Bank Tower. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, for so many decades, it was like the lone skyscraper in the corner of Fort Greene with nothing else around it. Um, I wonder why they decided to build it at that location where there was not really much of anything else when it went up in the late 20s. But I believe there was still already the, the – now there's nine subway lines underneath it. I doubt there were that many. I think it's right before the building of the uh, independent subway line. But – I think there were already several subway lines that merged there, so that would that would certainly seem good. And and I agree with you. As you said earlier, I grew up in Brooklyn, and to me, that was always the symbol of Brooklyn. And I'm kind of sad these days. It was you know? the tallest built. It was the tallest building in the borough for, for for at least half a century. And I have a very close friend who lives on the 26th floor with the wraparound balcony. Oh wow! And he's there for now almost a decade. And every Fourth of July now, when we go up, we see less of the view because there's another very tall build mm-hmm. building there. Yes. It's it's true. Well, I, I, as a real estate agent, uh, it was very interesting to see the condo development in the tower, which, you know, which, which they created really beautiful spaces mm-hmm. uh, about that. Um, fast forwarding a little to the Second World War, um, at the height of the war, there were more than 70,000 people who were employed at the Navy Yard. Yes. And the Fort Greenhouses, which are right north of Myrtle Avenue, they were originally built during the war. Uh, or uh, right before the war, I think, um, between mm-hmm. Myrtle and Park Avenue, where the BQE is now, to help alleviate the shortage of housing in the area. Um, well, we have to go to uh, to a sad part about the neighborhood's history, which actually befell many neighborhoods in New York. After the Navy Yard was decommissioned in 1966, it started a period of decline in the neighborhood, um, and that generally is associated with a lot of neighborhoods in New York City. Um, what started the rejuvenation of Fort Greene, which began in the early 80s. I have to start with a little bit of personal history. Uh, My mother's best friend uh, moved from Midwood, uh, and she bought an incredible brownstone on Washington Park uh, for a song, you know, and uh, the the thing is incredible. Uh, And and she was there and there at the birth of the of the uh, of the rebirth of Fort Greene. What what led to Fort Greene? Because I, I, when we would visit there, I remember Mom would say that don't go in the park. It was one of the mo- it was one of the the most dangerous places in Brooklyn. No, it, it, Jeff, there's no deny, denying it. That's absolutely true. I think one of the reasons why that area was rejuvenated is because of the fantastic housing stock that is there of brownstones, and not only brownstones. You go down certain blocks, such as. Oxford, South Oxford Street, you will find freestanding wood houses that have verandas. And it, 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 it's unbelievable the style of buildings that you have in Fort Greene. So I certainly think that was one, one area, uh, one reason why that area became uh, uh, popular again. Another reason is, I think, Fort Greene Park itself. And also, you know, Jeff, you just mentioned the street called Washington Park. And it's like, where did that name come from? Well, the original name of Fort Greene Park from 1847 to 1898 was Washington Park. And Washington Park is the is the street. It's the continuation of Cumberland be- between DeKalb and, and, and Myrtle. You know, when the dog people with dogs started to walk their dogs at night in the park in the 80s, early 90s, that made the park much safer because it was inhabited by, by, uh, by people again. And the dogs whom you didn't want to mess with in case they barked and bit you by attacking their owners. Correct. Uh, I mean, I mean that, that, 
that did happen. Hmm. Of course, uh, we have to give credit to Herbert Scott Gibson uh, in the 80s and the Fort Greene Landmark Preservation Committee, which also led to the establishment, his efforts, and and the uh, uh, committee's efforts to have Fort Greene designated a historic district. Um, Well, we have a very short amount of time left. There's so much more we can talk about, but what I'd like to do in the minute or so we have left, left, Greg, is talk about some of the newer and more recent institutions in Fort Greene. Sure. Well, one of my favorites is uh, a store. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, one of my favorites is New York Writers Coalition and New York Writers Coalition. To me, you know, Jeff, I want to say something to me. So much of Fort Greene is about writing and and people who famous writers who live there like Walt Whitman and uh, Marianne Moore and so many others. And here is a community organization that's one of the largest in the world of community-based writing workshops. And they have workshops for youth, for seniors, for the gay lesbian community, uh, for, for people who have been imprisoned. And it's just so inspiring because they, they believe everyone is a writer. And in so many ways in Fort Greene, I think everyone's a writer. Wow. Uh Thank you, Greg. Um, We're out of time in our first segment. Um, Our first guest today has been Greg Truppiano of the Walt Whitman Project. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. I am Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So that's seven o'clock every Thursday evening. The mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. First segment uh, about the history of opera. We have two guests: Michael Capasso of the New York City Opera and Greg Truppiano. Greg Truppiano. Greg is with Sarasota Opera as well as a couple of other things he does, which I'll talk about. Michael Capasso has produced, directed, and toured opera and musical theater productions in the U.S. and abroad for f- over forty years. He began his career producing and directing while still in his late teens. Wow, in early twenties. In nineteen eighty-one, he, along with Diane Martindale, founded New York's DeCapo Opera Theater. Michael has been general director of the New York City Opera since January of 2016. Two years before that, in 2014, along with philanthropist Roy Niederhofer, he led the successful effort to bring the New York City Opera out of bankruptcy, laying the artistic, administrative, and fiscal groundwork for the company's return to production. Under his leadership, the revitalized City Opera ended a long hiatus and took to the stage in January 2016 with the celebratory production of Tosca. Once again, on solid financial footing, the company has completed its 2018-19 season of six fully staged productions, concerts, and special events. 
During Michael's tenure, the City Opera has consistently lauded, has been lauded for innovative, eclectic programming and outstanding casting. Under his leadership, the company has mounted many landmark productions. A little bit more of his history. In addition to his work with the DeCapo Opera Theater, Michael has directed operas at La Opera de Montréal, Mallorca Opera in Spain, Toledo Opera, Connecticut Opera, the New Jersey State Opera, Opera Carolina, and Orlando Opera, among others. Michael founded the National Lyric Opera in 1991, a touring company that has brought fully staged operas to communities in the North American, I'm sorry, in the American Northeast that would otherwise not have the opportunity to experience live opera. And that itself is God's work, let me tell you. Uh, our second guest for the first segment of Rediscovering New York tonight is Greg Trupiano, who's a native of Brooklyn, where I'm a native from also. Greg is the founder and artistic director of the Walt Whitman Project. It's a Brooklyn-based community arts organization that started in 2000. It's devoted to exploring the life and influence of a great American writer through readings of his poetry and prose and performances of musical compositions based on his text. His texts, sorry. Past events of the Walt Whitman Project have been produced in cooperation with American Opera Projects, Fort Greene Park Conservancy, Brooklyn Historical Society, the Hudson Guild Theater Company, the Whitney Museum, Museum of the City of New York, Building 92 at the Navy Yard, that's the Brooklyn Navy Yard, the Gay Gotham Chorus, the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and with young poet writer mentor Angeli Raspberry. It was Angeli Raspberry, did I? Angeli Raspberry, sorry about that. Other past partners include St. Francis College, Pace University in Lower Manhattan, the Macon, Brooklyn Heights, and Central Branch of the Brooklyn Public Library, and the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. With all this Walt Whitman-related content, some of our listeners may be asking, what does this have to do with opera? Well, aside from being passionate about the art form, Greg is also Director of Artistic Administration at Sarasota Opera in Florida and spends half of each year in Sarasota working with the company. And he's also expert in the famed history of the development of opera in New York, which is our main subject tonight. And speaking of the Sarasota Opera, Greg doesn't run the company without help. Lon Black is the project's artistic associate. Greg and Michael, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Greg is a returning guest, by the way, uh, and will likely be uh, on future shows, too. Uh, gentlemen, before we get started on the history of opera in New York, since this is a show about New York, um, my guests are always intrigued by how people got here if they weren't from here originally. Michael, are you from New York originally? Yeah, I was raised on Long Island. That's New York. That's as New yeah. York as you get to. Greg, how about you? I was born in Brooklyn. Ah, that's dear to my heart. <laughs> Michael, how did you get into working in the world of opera? Um, I come from an Italian family that was constantly listening to Neapolitan music and never opera. And yet, when I asked who was the best Italian singer, the answer was Enrico Caruso. And I said, well, why aren't we listening to Caruso? And the answer was, well, because his recordings are difficult to listen to. So I got a book about Caruso by Francis Robinson called Caruso's Life in Pictures. And I was um, seven years old and fascinated by the pictures of this man in these costumes. And I then saw Mario Lanza's The Great Caruso film, and I asked to be taken to the opera. And I went, and, uh, and I never looked back. Well, and both of them, uh, Lanza and Caruso, died far too young. Yeah, Caruso at 48, Lanza at 38. Wow, wow. Greg, I have to call your career a renaissance career. Uh, it takes you to it took you to at least two places: history, especially Brooklyn history, and also opera. How did you come to be artistic uh, director of artistic production at the Sarasota Opera? I don't sing, so I have to do something in <laughs> opera. If I life would have been very different, like Michael, if if I if I sang, I never had that gift, so I went into administration. Ah. Well, uh, as long as you love something, you can be part of it. You know, I suppose like I am about New York. Uh, I don't uh, uh, I help sell it, but also bring it to people through these programs. That brings us to opera in New York. Um, opera, and also in its older form, its oldest form, has been around almost longer than New York was settled by the Dutch back in the 1620s. When would the city's residents have been able to see their first opera here? Well, let, uh, I'm going to start off with uh, some information on that. Uh, for our purposes, let's say it was 1825. What do I mean for our purposes? There were opera performances in New York before 1825, but much of it was in translation, or it was of a particular type of opera called English ballad opera, something like um, 
the beggars opera. They, they were popular. But when we're talking Italian opera sung in Italian, we have to go to 1825. And in 1825, at the Park Theater. Now, the Park Theater stood where J&R Records used to be. Remember that? On 4th Street. On, 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 on um, Park Row. Oh, on Park Row. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me, uh, you know, uh, directly across the street from City Hall. So that was... And it became th- Century 21 after J&R, right? Yeah, it's had quite, quite, a, quite a history of going back and forth from a theater to, to co- other commercial uses. But in 1825, a, a gentleman by the name of Manuel Garcia and his family came to New York specifically to produce Italian for, uh, uh, to, to produce Italian opera. That is uh, uh, Italian opera and opera in, in Italian. Now, why, why did it happen? Uh, living in New York City at this time is one of the most famous people from opera history, the librettist or the person who wrote the words, uh, Lorenzo da Ponte. And da Ponte wrote the words to three of the most popular operas ever written, uh, Don Giovanni uh, by Mozart, Così fan tutte, also by Mozart, and The Marriage of Figaro, also by Mozart. So it's just incredible that he ended up in Nuturer. And those other operas are from the late 1780s to the early 1790s, so this was decades later. This was decades later, but not that much later, right? Now, of course, Mozart died young at the age of 36, but de Ponte didn't die till the uh, 1840s, and he was well into his 80s. But he is living in New York saying to people, we need to Bring Italian opera here. So the uh, Garcia family came in. Now, the Garcia family was was incredible. It was headed by a tenor, uh, Manuel Garcia. Could you imagine? He sang the world premiere tenor role, the, the Count Almaviva, in the original Rossini production of The Barber of Seville in Rome in 1815. So he was a major singer and a major part of opera. And he came, he had a daughter, who's, uh, one daughter who, whose name was Maria. Later in life, she becomes one of the most famous divas in Europe, Maria Malabran, and dies very young. Uh, uh, in Paris at the age of, or near Paris, uh, uh, in her 20s. But even by that point, she had really made a mark, mark in music. He had a much younger daughter who, uh, during the New York years, was very young and not singing. And she becomes Pauline Viado, who lives well into her 80s and is one of the most famous opera singers of the 19th century. Finally, he had a son. The son, you know, he wasn't a very good singer. So what does he do? He becomes the best-known singing teacher in Europe during the 1900s. So he had quite a family. And they produced together in 1825. And I should also say uh, Garcia's wife was also a singer, his second wife. And they all, except for the baby, uh, Pauline, they all had roles in the Barber Seville, the first opera sung in Italian in New York City. And ultimately, they do uh, at the Park Theater about 80 performances over the, the next few years. And in eight, that same year, in 1825, um, uh, didn't the New Orleans Opera come and do Yeah, and the well? funny thing is, could you, the, in, in America by far, the city that had the most sophisticated opera uh, culture was New Orleans. And they actually used to send tours, companies from New Orleans uh, productions. Mm. Uh, to uh, perform in New York and other northeastern cities. I, I think the first, uh, uh, the oldest opera house, the dedicated opera house in the country was in New Orleans. Um, when did New York get its first dedicated opera company? That would have been thanks to Lorenzo de Ponte, well into his 80s at that point, in 1833. And it stood Lower Manhattan. Of course, the center of New York City is Lower Manhattan. And it was on the northwest corner of Church Street and Leonard Street. And it was called the Italian Opera House. It had high hopes, and within two years, De Ponte had to, had to sell it. But that was the in New York City the first dedicated building uh, created to produce opera. Mm. Um, one thing about the uh, the Whitman project: uh, there were a number of opera performances in the late eighteen forties that uh, his truly actually reviewed. That, that, uh, it's absolutely true. Uh, this year, we're celebrating Walt Whitman's two uh, hundredth birthday. And when he was the editor of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, 
1847, Whitman decided, you know what? I really like this Italian opera. So he reviewed productions of the Barber Seville. He attended and reviewed the very first Verdi opera ever produced in in America, and that was Verdi's fourth opera, Il Lombardi. And he writes a review of it in the in the uh, Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Mm. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Greg Trubiano and Michael Campasso. We'll be back in a minute. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. We're back to Rediscovering New York and our program about opera in New York. Um, Michael Capasso, uh, General Director of the New York City Opera, what are some of the operas that the City Opera is going to be doing in the near future? Uh, we have plans for uh, an opera by Pietro Mascagni called Isabeau, uh, which Mascagni is, of course, most famous for having written Cavalleria Rusticana, but he wrote many other important operas. And part of City Opera's history has always been to rediscover important works. Um, and Isabeau essentially is Lady Godiva, the opera. Um, but it's a very beautiful opera that we performed in London last year uh, in a co-production with Opera Holland Park. Uh, we are also planning um, the uh, a concert version of Benjamin Britten's Gloriana, which was written for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II and uh, is rarely performed. And in the leading role is the amazing uh, diva Anna Caterina Antonacci, who had a great success with this role in Spain a uh, year after. Uh, we have a LGBT concert also because we are the... Uh, uh, we are committed to every June doing uh, an LGBT-themed work. We've already done um, Angels in America and uh, Brokeback Mountain and last year world premiere opera about Stonewall called Stonewall. Wow. And this year it's the LGBT work is a concert uh, featuring um, Patricia Rossett, who is uh, not only a very, very important singer and, a, and an alum of the city opera, but also a leader in the LGBT community. Mm. Well, I want to go back to the uh, the history of opera in New York. Uh, uh, of course, we don't have a ton of time, but uh, uh, the pace of, of opera in New York speeds up in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, we had a very famous company that started in 1883. Yes, the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera and Real Estate Company was founded because opera prior to 1883 was being performed at what was called the Academy of Music. And the Academy of Music stood on Irving Place, where the Con Edison building is now. And it was for rich people to go to the opera to see and be seen. And 
there were some performances too, but it wasn't about performances. Um, and then there were the nouveau riche. In 1883, all of the new money, the robber barons, etc. Like Jay Gould. Right, like Jay Gould, uh, who couldn't get a box at the Academy of Music, and so they were unwelcome. So they decided that they would go way uptown, where there was a square block of empty real estate on 30, uh, 39th to 40th Street between Broadway and 7th Avenue. Was there anything else up there at that point? It, well, not? I think there were things up there, but it was, I mean, it was the country. Yeah. I mean, you know, uptown, uh, north of 23rd Street in those days, was not was a, a lot was going on. And they were able to buy this, you know, a square block and put up a building. And um, it was, um, everybody said it was just terrifically ugly. It, it was called the Yellow Brick Brewery. I have one of the yellow bricks on my desk as a paperweight, though. <laughs> um, and uh, when the Metropolitan Opera and Real Estate Company was formed, and it was essentially a co-op where um, the box holders owned the building, and they hired an, em- an empresario was engaged with the ability to exploit the building to his uh, profit throughout the year as long as he produced a certain amount of opera performances during the year as well. And it went on like that for quite some time. Well, one of the things that I found interesting about the Met is that you know, we all, uh, those of us who remember the Met on tour going across the country, uh, but the Met actually went on tour around the city. They just didn't perform in the Metropolitan Opera. No, absolutely. They were, they, were, they were throughout the city. They were in Brooklyn. They, um, they later, you know, for, and they went to Philadelphia. They were, they were all over. And uh, they were, and later on in the company's history, they had national tours. I mean, the Metropolitan Opera in, in 1906 was in San Francisco during the earthquake. Uh, they performed Carmen that night and went back to their hotel and then the earthquake. <laughs> Came. Wow, wow. Did San Francisco have its own opera company in those days or not? Um, you know what? I'm Just not curious. sure. <laughs> I mean, but, but, I, mean um, I don't really know, recall when the San Francisco um, Opera was formed. I, I don't believe it was as early as 1906. No. But speaking in 1906, uh, an ancestor of uh, another very famous American with the same name opens up another opera company. Right. That would be Oscar Hammerstein. And Oscar Hammerstein uh, was a great lover of opera and a great empresario who put everything he had into being an opera empresario. And he built the Manhattan Opera House, which is still standing on 34th Street and 8th Avenue. And um, it is now used for different purposes, of course. Uh, he produced some extraordinary work there, um, but and including the American premiere of Pelias and Melisande and things like that, a lot of French work in particular. And he was able to entice all of the major singers in the world to sing there with one single exception, and that was Enrico Caruso. And there was no singer more famous than Caruso at that time, or really ever since, if you consider what his wide appeal was throughout the world. And Caruso was loyal to the Metropolitan Opera, and and the years 1906 to 1908 were considered the great opera house wars. And there's a a Puck magazine uh, sketch of of Hammerstein and um, Conried, who was the director of the Met, throwing um, figurines of famous singers at each other, trying to you know, uh, trying to overcome one another. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the war was ended when Otto Kahn, who was the great philanthropist and essentially, the, uh, and he was the chair of the board of the Metropolitan Opera, personally gave Hammerstein one point two million dollars to stay out of the opera business in New York for ten years. And wow. n- Michael, not only in New York but also well, in uh, Boston, Boston, and, and, and Philadelphia. Could, yes. you, could you imagine $1.2 million in, in those? Wow. Just to, Jeff, just to add one more thing about the uh, Metropolitan Opera touring to Brooklyn. The Metropolitan Opera performed both at the uh, Brooklyn's Academy of Music, the original one in Brooklyn Heights on Montague Street near Clinton, and it also performed uh, after it, the fire destroyed it in 1903 when it reopened near Flatbush Avenue and Lafayette Avenue, uh, in in uh, 1908, but it also went to other theaters in in Brooklyn, including a theater in Williamsburg on Bedford Avenue and South 9th Street called the Amphion Theater, 
where they did an entire ring cycle. And I'm pretty sure that they brought the ring cycle to Williamsburg because of the German population there. Mm-hmm. And they, and they uh, would have, uh, um, they, they would have a ready-made audience for it. Well, and, and, and when, it op- when the new Brooklyn Academy of Music opened, and it still stands as the opera house in Brooklyn, it, it opened with a production of Faust with Caruso and the great American diva Geraldine Farrar, and it marked the first performance by the new administration that had been brought in by Otto Kahn, which was the general manager, Giulio Gatti-Cazazza, and um, the music director, Arturo Toscanini. And it was premiered with which singers in 1980? Caruso and Ferrar. Yeah. Yes. It was a very... God, to have been at that, that would have been an amazing experience. Not that to have been at any to... of these performances we're talking <laughs> <Yeah>. about. <laughs> um, well, Michael, let's go to, to New York's other well-known opera company, the New York City Opera. How did it get started? When, when, when did it start? And who, and, and, and who was instrumental in bringing it up, in, in starting it? It, it began um, as an idea of uh, Mayor LaGuardia. In 1943, the company was incorporated and it began performing in 1944 at uh, what was a Masonic temple on 56th Street, which is now uh, 55th and 56th. which is now called City Center. Well, that was a Masonic uh, temple originally? It was a Masonic temple oh, okay. originally, yes. And, um, and it was a, the inspiration of Mayor LaGuardia, and a group of philanthropists came together, and they hired an empresario conductor, a uh, Hungarian named Laszlo Halas. And Laszlo Halas began... Uh, in 1944 with the production of Tosca. And the idea behind the company was that it was the people's opera. So it was popularly priced. Um, It featured mostly repertoire that would appeal to the enormous immigrant population at the time, which was predominantly Italian or German Jewish. So the majority of the repertoire yeah, either appealed to Italian immigrants or people of Italian descent, or there was you know, a lot of German repertoire, a lot of operetta, and things of that sort. And they focused also um, differently than the Metropolitan Opera by that time. The Met had a long history of uh, in the Gatikazatsa time of doing American opera, but then City Opera really uh, put their stamp on it. And they were also incredibly diverse. They were the first company to engage a, an African-American composer. They were the first company years before Marian Anderson to put African-Americans in leading roles on stage. Um, very, very important to the diversity and the culture of New York City. Now, how, how long did they perform at City Center for? When did, uh, un, they until perform- the State Theater was, was until the state Until they moved to Lincoln Center, much to the chagrin of, of Rudolph Bing, who didn't want them as a neighbor. And, um, and you know, they moved to the State Theater, what was then the State Theater, uh, and it was a it was a, a beautiful venue for them, but it was a big step up. And um, one thing that has been consistent throughout the entire history of the New York City Opera is they've never had enough money, and I can tell you that that's the case today too. <laughs> but you were really great in helping to uh, pull the City Opera up out of the depths of the not good financial situation back to, to back to pr- putting productions on. Yes, in in 2013, I read in the New York Times along with everybody else that City Opera had filed for Chapter 11 protection, and I was uh, shocked and horrified. I, I was raised on Long Island and I used to take the train in and go to see you know hundreds of performances uh, at City Opera since I was a kid. I went to the Met too but you know I could afford to go to City Opera which was a big difference and they did amazing amazing things and they did repertoire that you couldn't see anywhere else. You couldn't see the Boito Mephistofele or, or, or De Torestat and things like that where the amazing production of the Massenet Manon. It wasn't being done at the Met at that that time. They really carved out a niche for themselves. And so um, I called a friend of mine who was a lawyer and said, what's the story with bankruptcy and non-for-profits? And he said, I don't know, but talk to Gerard, which he regrets because now this our general counsel has spent you know hundreds and hundreds of pro bono hours helping us. And we went through the process of restructuring the company, which took two years, but ultimately we won the asset and we, uh, we came out in January of 2016. And to pay respect to the history of the company, we opened with Tosca again. Oh, that's great. 
which happens to be one of my favorite operas. <laughs> it's my desert island opera, for sure. Um, and, of course, around the same time that uh, uh, both opera companies moved to Lincoln Center, uh, there's the tale, uh, kind of the sordid story of what was going to happen to the old Met, as was known, the original opera house. Um, what happened to the old Met, and why is it not here anymore? It's, it, it's not here because it, was, it, it sat by this time, by the 60s, 39th and Broadway was a very valuable parcel of real estate. And the Met uh, needed, to, uh, needed the money, the income from, from the, the property. And there were people who were fighting to preserve the house because of its tradition and, and, and everything that it was. And, and the landmarks preservation was just coming in because there had been the fight over the demolition of Penn Station. And, um, the commission was formed in 65. 65, and, and, and this was all going on at the same time. And ultimately, the Met couldn't be saved. And there is a, uh, there's some amazing pictures of the demolition. And there's, there's one of uh, Licia Albanese, you know, um, in the, the great, great soprano in the rubble of the, of the old house. And it was, had it been saved, it would likely be used today much in the way the Palais Garnier is used in Paris, where which is this, you know, and they have a new, totally modern opera house, and then they have the older, you know, elegant opera house. Well, thank goodness that was not demolished. <laughs> that would be talk about the, I mean, the crime, yes. you know, it would be all in the uh, order of Penn Station. Um, in the short time we have left, I do want to ask one additional question. Uh, for a while, there was actually opera performed in a stadium in New York, wasn't there? Yes, Lewisham Stadium is uh, was on the campus of City College. Uh, where the polo grounds were and, and, you know, lots of activity was up there. And um, many, many performances of opera happened there uh, by the Metropolitan Opera, by the New York City Opera. There were concerts by the Philharmonic. Incredibly famous singers sang there. Um, and it, it, it's an important place that uh, is, uh, again, has been since demolished. You can see it in its partial demolition in the movie Serpico. There's a scene that takes place in the partially demolished stadium. Well, gentlemen, Michael and Greg, we have not had nearly enough time to talk about uh, the history of this great art form in our great city. But I want to thank you for uh, being able to, to illuminate us a little bit to the, the history of, of opera in New York. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank Mike, you for having us. Uh, the guests on the first part of my show have been Michael Capasa, who's general director of the New York City Opera. And also Greg Truppiano, who is the founder and artistic director of the Walt Whitman Project and who also is the director of artistic administration at Sarasota Opera in Florida. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this tribute to Greg Truppiano as much as I have. Greg was the artistic administrator of the Sarasota Opera in Florida and was also the founder and artistic director of the Walt Whitman Project here in New York. Greg, we miss you. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant for Rediscovering New York is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. 
We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock, every Thursday evening, the mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc, listening to real stories of real leaders. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a curious person always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 